Uh, so did y'all have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah. Okay. How many of you was a terrible Thanksgiving? Be honest. It's okay. Only three of you. That's pretty good. All right. Uh, well, I hope it was good. And um, my hunch is that, well, I hope that some of the uh, tools that we equipped you with, either the prayer that we sent you home with, maybe that was helpful, the little blessing. Anybody use that? Maybe a couple of you. Okay, fantastic. Somebody used the stuff that I gave out. Great. Uh, how about the discussion starters? Did anybody play with that a little bit? Let's see if that worked. Well, I know my table did, so that was good. <laughs> and it was actually, it was cool uh, to be able to have uh, conversations a little deeper. Uh, it's all part of our Grateful series, um, inspired by Diana Butler Bass's book by the same name. And we're wrapping that up today, uh, just to remind you where we've been. We started off following her sections where we talked about personal gratitude and the, and the emotions of that, what we feel and how to cultivate that. And then we shifted into the personal ethics that come out of gratefulness. And there are certain things that we can do in our lives to facilitate more gratitude in our lives. And the reason that's important is the quality of our lives increase the more we spend uh, grateful. Um, it, there's a direct equivalent to that. And then last week we shifted to the communal aspects of gratitude and gratefulness on the emotional side. And one of the things that we looked at was that when you're in community that is grateful, the gratefulness quotient exponentially increases. Like uh, if you're at a sporting event and the Niners get the touchdown and like they did Thursday night and creamed the Seattle Seahawks, which was wonderful. Uh, you know, you could just hear the whole Bay Area, you know, rejoicing, uh, which, we, which we should. Um, but it's also true in theater. Uh, you know, I've been in theater and uh, I know when the crowd has been uh, absolutely with me and the crowd can be electric and alive and there's this energy that emanates and feeds the people on stage and just takes it to a new level. And I've also been uh, on the other side of that when the, the crowd was absolutely dead <laughs> and the whole company is like, man, we got to dig deep for this one because they are not helping us out at all and it's so, so different. And that's actually true here. Uh, I know when you are more alive and with me and together, and I know when you're not. And so just hoping that you're more with me today <laughs> uh, than not. Uh, so there's this communal aspect of this emotional experience that we have together. And today we're talking about well, what, what is the ethic uh, that that generates? Because gratitude by itself is fine but it's, it leads to something else. It motivates something else, calls to something else. And that's what we're looking at today. And it might, uh, might surprise you. Uh, I, I'm guessing I'm gonna surprise you a little bit today. I'm guessing I'm gonna frustrate, maybe disappoint you for five minutes, and then hopefully bring you back uh, to a place where you feel uh, pretty good about it. So I got this email, it says, Pastor, please, please talk more about politics. Signed, no one ever, <laughs> right? How many of you uh, got into a rousing debate of your favorite presidential candidates around the Thanksgiving table this week? Right, you probably absolutely squashed that idea. Even if everybody around the table was on the same political team, you probably discouraged talking about politics because it's so divisive in our country right now, so binary, that even if you're all on the same page, it's gonna tank, right? It's gonna go to negative land real quick, somehow, some way. This is kind of the reality of the political landscape in our country. It's very difficult to talk in meaningful ways across uh, the blue and the red divide. Uh, that's just how it is. In fact, we know uh, culturally, socially, there are two things that polite company is supposed to not talk about. What are those two things? 
religion and politics, which makes it a real bummer for me. <laughs> because as a pastor who's following the footsteps of Jesus as best as I can, uh, knowing that he was, uh, first of all, a very significant religious figure, it's like I, I can't go very long before somebody, that's why I'm a buzzkill. Any party, that, that's why you never invite me to parties, because you know that as soon as somebody finds out what I am and what I do, it just like kills the room immediately, or at least they walk away from me and uh, go somewhere else uh, to talk. It happens all the time, uh, because religion is one of those things that people just, they believe personally deeply, but they sure don't want to talk about it uh, socially, because it's kind of like politics. It's very divisive. And of course, the bummer for me is not only <laughs> is my wheelhouse religion, uh, but the one I'm trying to follow and emulate is Jesus, who happened to be very deeply religious and very, very, very political. Even if we didn't realize it uh, when we were younger going to Sunday school, because it wasn't, wasn't shown to us that this was what was really happening, it's all over the place. So in his uh, famous stump speech, I call it his stump speech, uh, called uh, the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, depending which gospel uh, you're reading it in. He starts off with these beautiful statements. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the mournful. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who have been abused. The, blessed are those who are, you know, hurt because of my name. All right, you're familiar with these? They're called the Beatitudes, and they're all these beautiful statements. We read those, and we're just like, well, I really don't understand them, but they sure are nice things that Jesus said. When in reality, they were deeply subversive. Because in the world that Jesus lived as a first century Jewish man, the Roman Empire and the social structure told people who were meek, told people who were poor, told people who were mourning, uh, that really they were less than everybody else. Uh, that they weren't as good as Roman people for sure, and they certainly weren't that loved by God. So when Jesus, who by this point, you know, people recognize God's flowing through this guy in ways that we haven't seen, and it's pretty pronounced. And he starts saying to people who are just like himself, by the way, because Jesus was dirt poor, had no social clout whatsoever. And when he's saying as one who's, you know, God's touch and breath is on in a powerful way, and he's saying to them, whatever Rome says, I'm telling you something else. That you matter, you're equal, you're valued, you're loved, even if it doesn't feel like it, know that the heartbeat of God is with you, not against you. That's going against the political sensibilities of the day. And later on in the sermon, he says some things, a series of verses that, this is a little bit review, but some things that just look like tips on being a nice person. So he has this statement about going the extra mile. You remember that? Oh, they ask you to go one mile. Well, go an extra mile. And that even became, you know, a marketing uh, quip for a gas station or a, what is it, AM, PM or something like that. They print it on all their cups, go the extra mile. Uh, you might have heard the thing, uh, give the shirt off your back. If they want your cloak, give them your shirt too, because, you know, if you're going to be a nice person, be extra generous with your, with your clothing. It's okay if you walk around naked, that's fine. Uh, there's another one where it says, uh, if somebody slaps you across the, the cheek, offer the other one, because that's what good people do. Just beat me, please, you know, right? But each one of these things are not tips on being nice people. They're actually instruction on what it means to be non-violently protesting the injustices of the day, even if we didn't, weren't taught initially to see it that way. Uh, briefly, the go the extra mile referred to the legal right for Roman soldiers to force uh, Israelites uh, to carry their gear, their heavy gear, for one mile. 
And then it was up to the Roman soldiers to find some other sucker to get the next vial. But if they were caught having, uh, having an Israelite, uh, a Jewish person, carry their gear more than a mile, then they would get in trouble with their CEO. So when Jesus was saying go the extra mile, it was like a nonviolent way to shine a light on an injustice because it's just not right that somebody should be conscripted right off the side of the street to carry this guy's stuff for a mile in the first place. And so when they choose to say, oh no, please let me carry this an extra mile and the CO finds out about it, then they've got some problems and it shines a light. You see what happens? It shines a light on the injustice of the whole thing. And that whole give the shirt off your back, this has to do with economics and debt. If you have a rich person who, who loans you money, and probably at terrible terms because it was the only terms you could afford to get and you were suckered into it, you didn't have a choice. It was either take the, take the loan uh, on terrible terms or you go to prison or your family suffers or whatever. So they go for it. And if they couldn't repay, part of the law of the day was is that the guy who's, who holds the note uh, could demand your very coat uh, from sunrise to sunset so you wouldn't have your cloak but it was required by law to give your coat back at night so you wouldn't grow cold. Isn't that a neat law? <laughs> Such a weird law. And so the, the situation that we're imagining here when Jesus says this is a courtroom where the guy who's holding the note uh, is demanding more from the guy who already has nothing. And the guy knows that he's not being treated justly. So how does Jesus recommend to shine a light on the justice of economic disparity? He says, in the courtroom, when they demand your coat, you give them that, but then you take off your cloak too, which means you're no longer wearing anything. And in that society, even more than today, to be absolutely naked in the courtroom uh, would be incredibly humiliating for everybody, especially the one who holds the note. It was a way to say to everybody in the courtroom and anybody who was paying attention, this system is wrong. They're not really breaking any laws. They're just shining a light on the disparity. And on the thing about, you know, if somebody hits you across the cheek, offer the other one, this has to do with uh, social issues and, and inequality among people. So the image here is that you have uh, a master of a house and you have a servant or slave. And they're in the public setting and the master of the house is upset with the servant or the slave and very publicly backhands the person across the cheek. It was one of the most humiliating things you could do publicly because it clearly stated, I am above you. And they knew it, and it was, made them feel like worms. When Jesus says, offer the other cheek, he's just simply inviting them to stand up and make them hit again. But this time, the person who, the master in this case, cannot backhand because that is no longer available to them. So now, this sounds weird, but now they have to decide, are they gonna hit this servant with their fist? But to hit the servant with a fist is to treat them like an equal. So it is a matter of shining a light on the injustice of the situation, even with something like that. This, to me, is a lot like what we saw uh, in nonviolent protest uh, in our own American history when people just stood their ground. They weren't causing any, any laws to be broken, they were just simply saying, you will treat me like a dignified person even if you try to push me down. That's what Jesus was teaching. Uh, Jesus was so well known for this that Gandhi uh, learned from Jesus how to tell his people how to do nonviolent protest to uh, ward off uh, oppression in India. 
And who went to Gandhi to talk about, tell me everything you know? Martin Luther King Jr. To learn from Gandhi about he did nonviolent protests, which pointed back to Jesus in the first place. It's fascinating to see where all this comes. And yet in the church that I grew up in, I never heard any of this stuff. For me, the Jesus that I heard about cared about people, but it was kind of more like a Hallmark uh, movie, you know, warm, fuzzy Jesus, he's going to be your buddy, and just, you know, ask for forgiveness so that you can go to heaven someday and it's all going to be good. That was about the extent of it. But the more closely you study Jesus, you understand that this idea of religion and politics uh, being off the table, that's actually impossible for people of faith. The question is, is how do we do it? So, there's a story to make this point. Again, it's going to dabble into politics, uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it deals with a particular issue here of economic disparity, of what do you do with a traitor. And just to remind you of who Jesus is by this point, uh, it has a lot to do with this tapestry over here. I'm not exactly sure how it all timed out. We know almost nothing about Jesus' childhood, but somewhere around the time that Jesus got baptized, we don't know if it was a some kind of a mystical experience he had at the baptism itself or if he just matured up to a point but he had what we would call a unitive vision of reality a satori moment as the japanese would say this is how i i i see this and it was so compelling at the baptism that all three actually all four of the gospels talk about him breaking away for a period of time on an extended camping trip to sort out what all this meant whatever happened to him radically shaped his vision, his thinking, and would radically change his steps. When he came back from that event, he goes and preaches his first sermon, and he got political like that, and it was not popular. He talked about how God was bigger than just Jews, that God was going to reach into non-Jewish people as well, and his hometown church <laughs> almost killed him right then and there because he dabbled in the wrong thing. Well, today we're taking a look uh, at a story about Jesus as he entered uh, into relationship with a tax collector uh, who was also uh, very short-statured, vertically challenged. Maybe you know who I'm talking about. His name was Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Anybody with me so far? <laughs> he climbed up to a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Lord came by that way, <laughs> Jesus stopped and saw him in the tree and called out, Zacchaeus, you come down, fill in the blank, for I'm coming to your house today, for I'm coming to your house today. And so the story ends up being relegated to a kid's story about Jesus embracing a short tax collector <laughs> who was climbing up in a tree just to get a good view. And we all think it's this, this cute, fun story. But it's actually much deeper than that. So let's check it out. So this comes from Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through a town, through town. A man there named Zacchaeus, a ruler among tax collectors, was rich. Now let's just stop right there. So just a reminder, in the Roman Empire, there's no way they had enough CPAs to go around all the empire and collect taxes everywhere they went. And so they would conscript, they would hire, they would make a deal with indigenous peoples wherever the empire spread to be their tax collectors and they they gave them a pretty good deal and this was the deal they said this is the amount we need 
uh, for people given whatever they have, etc., for what's coming in, trade, or what their holdings are. Uh, and uh, you have the full force of the Roman Empire to enforce your decision. So you have the threat of military <laughs> behind you when you say you owe X amount of dollars. They also uh, didn't say anything about how much more you were able to collect if you wanted. And tax collectors knew they could get as much as they, could, as they possibly could. It was sort of like capitalism before there was capitalism. See what you can get away with. Let the market determine how much, how rich you can get. And Zacchaeus found out how rich he could get. Not only was he a tax collector, he was a ruler among tax collectors. So this guy had his own pyramid scheme with other tax collectors. This guy had more money than God at this point. But as soon as he decided to become a tax collector, his fellow Jewish people wanted nothing to do with him because they looked at him as a traitor. And then when he continued to enrich himself and line his own pockets, it just deepened the hatred that they had toward this guy. So Zacchaeus may be very powerful, he may have high social rank, but he was not popular. He was trying to see Jesus, who Jesus was, but being a short man, he couldn't because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree so he could see Jesus, who was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to that spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down at once. I must stay in your home today. So Zacchaeus came down at once, happy to welcome Jesus. What you just witnessed in this text is a political, subversive act. You know, because you've been hearing about it, that the Roman Empire worked on a, a system of uh, gratitude expressed through reciprocity. You had people in power and wealth. They did something for those who didn't have as much wealth, and that created a debt of gratitude to come back to those who had more. This was the cycle. The appropriate way that this should have transacted is Zacchaeus from the tree, who's not just climbing to see because he's short, but climbing because he feels that he is above everybody else, for him to say to Jesus, hey Jesus, I'm Zacchaeus, I'm the ruler of the tax collectors in this town, and I want you to come over for dinner tonight, what do you say? And at that point, Jesus would have to figure out, do I want to accept this invitation or not? Because to say yes to that invitation would be to say yes to whatever strings were attached to that gift of dinner, you know what I'm saying? Instead, you have Jesus, who at this point, he's popular, but he's a peasant. He's got no social clout whatsoever. Even though people know that something's different with this guy, he doesn't have any social rank. So for him on level ground to call up to this guy who's a, literally above him and socially above him, come down for that tree, because I'm coming to your house today, is to totally reverse the system. When Zacchaeus comes down, He's no longer speaking to Jesus as one above Jesus. He's speaking to Jesus as equals on level ground. For Zacchaeus, this is mind-blowing because Jesus is clearly a holy man. He is the walking representation of the presence of God for the Jewish people at this time, many of them anyway. And for him to say, I want to have dinner with you, spoke volumes. So much so that two things happened. First, everyone who saw this grumbled, saying he's gone to be the guest of a sinner, and they wondered, should we really believe about this Jesus, everything we've heard? But then Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my possessions to the poor, 
And if I have cheated anyone, I repay them four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this household, because he too is a son of Abraham. The human one, this was a term that Jesus liked to use for himself. We often read it translated son of man. He didn't like son of God. Son of man was sort of like, a, I'm, I'm one of you. I'm, I'm every man. The human one is just a way to say that. The human one came to seek and save the lost. So the salvation thing is fascinating. That he says salvation has come to this house. And recognize that we get no indication from the text that Jesus had uh, a tract with him with four spiritual laws, you know, to hand to Zacchaeus to say, this is the path to salvation. We don't recognize anything in this thing where Jesus, you know, had Zacchaeus sit down in front of him and go through a long sermon or anything like that to try to get him to say yes to Jesus. It was the very act of being walking shalom, walking deep peace, that, that shalom of the Hebrew word that means the depths of everything that the Greek word salvation talks about, wholeness, well-being, all this for everybody. He was so full of that that just the very uh, invitation alone and just being in that welcoming presence of this one who represents God was enough to change everything for this guy. So much so that he essentially quit his job. Diana Butler Bass, who wrote the book, she says essentially what you see uh, Zacchaeus doing here and saying, I promise to give all this money back is basically for him to hang up his hat and to say, I'm done with the Roman Empire, which is why Jesus says he's a son of Abraham, not because he says so or because he took a blood test. He's a son of Abraham because he's saying no to the political system that the Roman Empire uh, has forced upon him, and he's saying no to greed at the expense of so many others. That makes him a true Jewish representation. This is a story of flipping, flipping the script. Even though it doesn't look political, it's actually deeply political. He's challenging the Roman Empire. He's challenging uh, the system of reciprocity. He's challenging the social order, <laughs> all by just showing up in a town and inviting a person to dinner. And, you know, we operate in a theological uh, sphere here called open and relational theology, which means that God is open to whatever's going to unfold and that God is deeply in relationship with everything in all of creation at all times. It also means that, that there's risk on God's part. God's not exactly sure how the characters are going to respond to these various invitations towards shalom. If, if the Spirit of God is the embodiment or that representation of shalom, you know, uh, permeating everything and calling us forward to deeper practices of love, equity, equality, all the wonderful things that we hope for, uh, then that shalom that calls us along the way uh, is an invitation that we can accept or reject. So you have two characters here. You have Zacchaeus and Jesus. First you have Jesus. I'd submit to you that Jesus didn't have to say yes to any of those nudges. As Jesus is coming to Jericho, uh, he could have looked up into that tree and said, yeah, I know who that guy is. What a clown. I hate that guy. Uh, he is a, he's the biggest jerk of all tax collectors in this town. Look how wealthy that guy is. Look at all these people down here who have been ripped off by that guy. I'm not even going to make eye contact with him. So maybe the first nudge that Jesus gets is, well, Shalom is pointing up there to that guy. Will you at least take a look at him? And Jesus decides, okay. And now there's another invitation that Shalom is offering to Jesus. Hey, what do you say we flip the script? What do you say, instead of 
deepening the hatred that Jewish people have toward these tax collectors and the Roman Empire that they represent, let's change everything. Why don't you say to this one, why don't you make an invitation to him to see if Shalom could change his life? And so that's when Jesus makes the invitation, come down from there. I'm gonna, I must have dinner with you today. And this isn't a must like, like God said, Jesus, you must have dinner with Zacchaeus. It's not that at all. This is a compelling thing. Like, like Jesus is now kind of getting it more and more, seeing what's possible here at, at Shalom's invitation. He's like, I've got to come to your house today. I've got to come to your house today. Remember we've talked about uh, Jesus and the Gospel of John, how he goes up through Samaria. He takes the, the short way, which Jewish people don't want to take because they're going to have to see Samaritans who they hate. And most people took the longer direction to avoid Samaritans. But when Jesus was there, he tells the disciples, we have to go through Samaria. Remember this? He says this, I have to go through. He didn't have to go. Uh, he wanted to do. He, he was compelled to go to see this other people group. It's the same thing with this. I must come to your home today is not, I'm under orders. It's, Shalom is compelling me to break bread with you today. Shalom is compelling me to treat you as an equal, to re-invite you into the fold, to see what God can do with your life. That's what's going on here. But Zacchaeus didn't have to say yes either. Zacchaeus didn't really know that much about Jesus. He, he felt the nudge to go climb the tree, but that could just be to see uh, who he could collect some more taxes from, perhaps, or, or just look down his nose at somebody, or just mere curiosity. But when he heard that invitation, come down from that tree, Zacchaeus also had a choice. And he certainly had different voices in his head. One of those was uh, to do exactly what the invitation suggested, climb down the tree, have a conversation, perhaps dinner with Jesus. But you know there had to be other voices in his head. All these people are looking at me. All these people have been making fun of me for being short my whole life. I am now in power over all of them. And this guy on the ground is trying to call me down to a level playing field with him as if to say we're equals. There could have been voices in Zacchaeus' head which is just like, hey, no thanks, preacher man. Uh, it's, no thank you. Uh, this is not appropriate and I want nothing to do with you except maybe some tax dollars. That would have been a very normal response, right? But he listened to something else too. He said yes to the, the invitation of Shalom and it brought him down on equal level with Jesus. This whole thing is an example of the open and relational uh, exercise and dance that we have with the Spirit of God. And you have it all of your life, all the time. <laughs> you had options this past week as you broke bread with people around tables and said things. You had, you had times when you probably wanted to say something and you chose not to because your better angels told you that would be a bad idea, <laughs> right? Uh, you were listening to the voice of Shalom because you want a deep peace and community in the moment rather than its opposite. Well, we see an example here, I think, of what it should look like for us to follow Jesus along political lines. And this is where you might be disappointed to know that, yep, uh, we actually do need to think about what it means to follow Jesus even when it comes to political discourse. But I think how we approach it probably makes all the difference. I have, as you know, uh, gotten emails over the years uh, from people who've had big problems with stances that we've made and made threats against Crosswalk, tearing down our pride banners and that, that kind of a thing. Uh, some people recently, because of the weirdness of the time that we live in, uh, you know, dug deep into 
the dark web or something, I don't know, and found out alternative meanings of our pride flags that say everyone is welcome all the time, you know, that's the gist of what they say, uh, but they've co-opted even that to say that it sends a dark message to those who have nefarious ideas about what they could do in our society. Crazy, crazy stuff, and some to the point where they won't even step foot on our campus as long as those flags are there. It's very curious to me. Sometimes saying yes to shalom, especially when it comes to changing things in our political or our social environment, are deeply unpopular. In fact, I shouldn't say sometimes, it's all the time, because change is not always easy. And yet shalom calls us forward. This, by the way, has massive biblical precedent. Uh, I'm not making this stuff up. If you took Carol's class uh, on the Old Testament, then you know uh, that the first five books of the Old Testament are called the Pentateuch. They're the books of the law. And in the books of the law, uh, you see the law being given three different times, three different voices, three different eras, three different groups of writers for that, for that fact. Uh, and in each time, you see the law change. It may be slightly, but it changes. It starts off by simply saying, for one particular example, uh, that we need, to, we need to protect widows, orphans, and immigrants. And that's kind of the, the thrust of it. It doesn't really elaborate much on it. And why widows, orphans, and immigrants? Because in that day and age, they were the most vulnerable people in society. Uh, they'd lost their husband, who was uh, their primary provider. They lost their parent, provider, and immigrant who had no, no right to anything in this foreign land. And yet the ancient Jewish law at its outset said, you need to protect them. Time went on. People in the community listening to the voice and the woo of God and Shalom. And what does Shalom look like? Shalom shines a light on this particular legal issue of how well are we providing Shalom for widows, orphans, and immigrants. And the light shone on that said, oh, we need to be doing a better job because they are not experiencing Shalom nearly to the level that they should be. And the reason they're not is because people are finding ways to work around the written law as it is to take advantage of them. So they revised the law based on shalom. Time passed, same thing happens. They shine the light of shalom back on, on that part of the law, realize they need to revise it again. This is open and relational theology and politics in real time. This is what it looks like. This is what we should expect. Not a hard and fast written in stone. This is the law forevermore. But to realize that if God is in relationship with all the time, always wooing us with shalom, then every step of the way we're called to revise and reconsider how well are we really doing on all this stuff. But to be careful to not get sucked in uh, to the wrestling match with pig in a mud pit because they enjoy it and we all get dirty <laughs> and one of us comes out the winner and it's not us. We cannot be that people who just simply repeats and parrots all the dark, ugly, political rhetoric that's out there, because that itself can be anti-shalom. But what if we say that there's a higher way? What if we say that there's a better way to think about life for everybody that is based in this idea of shalom, which is well-being and good for all people? What if that's the thing that we lead off with? Then when we start looking at things, it's no longer a red, blue, Democrat, Republican thing. It's just like, this is a great idea. And by the way, there are some issues with this or, or uh, concerns about shalom that are parroted uh, in our own governing documents in the United States. Like the fact that all people are created equal. All people have the protection of the law. 
Uh, all people, if they meet certain guidelines, have the right to vote. Well, what if Shalom takes a look at that and just says, all right, is there genuine equality and equity in our country? And where we don't see it, we shine the light of Shalom on it and just say, let's see if we can illumine why that is. Because everybody wants everybody to be equal players in the United States. That's who we are, right? At least that's who we say we are. So why not shine the light of Shalom on that and say, hey, everybody, this is what we're really about. This is deeply seated in the heart of God, so let's see what we can do with that. And when it comes to voting, maybe we take a look at the, the light of Shalom and point it around to different areas, and we look in a particular pocket that it doesn't seem like the people that are living in that area are really getting represented uh, with their vote. And so we shine the light of Shalom and we say, what is happening here? That the people who actually live there, their vote doesn't seem to really count for much. What is, the, what is the light of Shalom saying? Because we're in America, where everybody gets a vote. We're, we're super proud of that, right? Every election cycle, we celebrate the freedom of the vote. What if Shalom recognizes that there are areas that are not so shalomy? Uh, that's <laughs> I, I need to trademark that word. Every time I use it, it gets a chuckle. I stand by it, too. But you know what I mean. If we, if we see that there are some people that are not experiencing that at all, isn't it Shalom that is inviting us to say, wait a minute, uh, this is not how it's supposed to be. Regardless of blue or red, donkey or elephant, this is just Shalom. This is what we all hope for in our, in our deepest parts of us. Now, you know, I asked you to talk around your tables uh, about things that you love to hear people talk about. Uh, and I'm, I'm guessing that they're the exact opposite, the things that you shared, of things you hate people talking about, which probably one of those is politics, right? But my guess is, is that the things that you've walked away with, either this past week uh, at the Thanksgiving meal or maybe more broadly, is you're thinking about those beautiful stories of life, about people sharing their, their depth of soul with you. And maybe there were hard times in the past year, but there were also some beautiful things as well that are worth recognizing and being grateful for. Those are the kinds of depth things that we long for, and those things are marked by shalom. When we talk about people experiencing wonder and beauty in the world, those are things that we can, we can listen to and lean in on. When people are just whining and playing and being negative, nobody likes to listen to that for very long. But what if shalom is always leading with beauty? What if shalom is always leading with depth and peace and love as the goal and as the means? Where might that lead? The Apostle Paul uh, prided himself on being one who uh, flawlessly lived up to all 613 Jewish laws. <laughs> he said among Jews, he, there was none that uh, were anywhere near as Jewish as he was. And yet it's this Paul that had an experience like Jesus that stopped him in his tracks, made him rethink absolutely everything to the point where when called upon to speak into it, he basically said, you know, all 613 laws are really unnecessary because really the only thing that matters, I'm twisting the words or massaging the words here, the only thing that matters is loving God and loving other people as ourselves. The only thing that really matters is shalom. He taught, told the Jewish uh, Christian uh, council, leadership council in Jerusalem, who were wondering about what laws need to be kicked out. And there he said, well, I think you should kick them all out, except for two. 
And the two that he kicked, that wanted to keep were not because they mattered to God at all, but because they would be important to sustain the community in Jerusalem. One of them had to do with circumcision, because in certain pockets, especially in Israel, circumcision was a very, very big deal. Even though in other situations he said circumcision means nothing to God, <laughs> when he rolled into Jerusalem with his protege Timothy, he made poor Timothy get circumcised just to appease the community that was there. It's a bad day to be Timothy, <laughs> right? But that's how Paul was valuing. He's like, well, this doesn't really matter to God, but it really matters to the community, so we want to protect that. And then another one had to do with food practices. Is it okay for people to eat food that was offered and sacrificed to false gods? Because there were some in the community that thought, well, if you're eating that food, it's kind of like you're worshiping that false god. And Paul was saying, you know what, at home, I don't think God gives a rip where you get your barbecue. Just enjoy the barbecue. But in certain circles, it's going to be an affront to community. So let's keep the circumcision and let's keep the food sacrifice to idol uh, thing in place because we want to preserve the shalom in a deeply divided group for a time. It's brilliant and challenging, and it's stuck. So my question is for you. On the global level, what are the things that need shalom that you can think of? There are lots. Gordon mentioned Ukraine and Russia, certainly Israel and Gaza. Deeply painful things. There are other things that uh, are, should be troubling us as well. Sure, yeah, just as an entire continent, there's, there's always, uh, well, there's genocide there right now. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, South Seas uh, with China. You know, there's, there's turmoil or potential turmoil everywhere in North Korea. Let's just make a long list, right? There's plenty on the global scale. And we think about the national scale uh, inside the United States. We know we're still struggling with equity and equality, about voters' rights. We're talking about interpretation of law and is shalom uh, forming our vision of what the law should provide and protect in our nation or going back uh, in time to a time that doesn't exist anymore, these kinds of things. Napa, there are things that shalom needs to shine a light on, but I wonder about just your own little community, whoever that might be. Could be your coworkers, could be classmates, could be uh, your family. Is there anything that Shalom would shine a light on today and say, this needs to be a little more Shalomy. This needs to be Shalomed a little bit more. And for some of you, that may be kind of a difficult thing. Like maybe somebody made an offensive comment or something, you know, in your, whatever that community of yours is. And Shalom is saying, how can you be Jesus here? How can you move into this thing to level the playing field, to get back to the side of Shalom? toward health and well-being for all. For some of you, it might be actually a delightful thing. It might be a super positive thing. Maybe nobody said anything offensive. Uh, I had, my wife and I had a blast uh, this week uh, having our kids home and their significant others. And so maybe shalom for Lynn and I is to say, we love you so much and we're so excited to see what's developing in your lives and we couldn't be more supportive and let us know how we can be because that's a shalomy thing to do. How can we foster more and more shalom? What in your community, where does it need more shalom? And how do you get to do it? Because it's an invitation. You get to do this. You get to be the bearer of good news. And that's a beautiful thing. And finally, personally, as, a, as, a, as an individual, is there anything that, that shalom's light might be shining on you? But how you see yourself, your internal dialogue, what's happening in your being. We live in a 
in a country where advertising dictates what normal, successful, beautiful look like. And it's hard not to listen to those voices. But Shalom speaks a different language, speaks a deeper chorus. And I wonder if maybe Shalom needs to touch you on that or the other side. Maybe, maybe the Shalom invitation for you is to celebrate what you've experienced so far. To celebrate the times when you've accepted the, the invitation of Shalom and you are on your way to a more Shalomy experience in life. Because that's also there. You have a beautiful invitation in front of you if you want it. You don't have to take it. You can choose the opposite direction. Uh, you, are, you have full agency. But the invitation to more and deeper Shalom is always there. Questions: Will you say yes, or will you take a pass? Let's pray together. Just take a moment of silence, and then we'll end with the Lord's Prayer in a few minutes. So, just take another deep breath and just mull over. Really, the whole service. Is there anything that the Spirit of God has bubbled up into your consciousness that is meaningful to you today? Take homes. That kind of stuff. What is the invitation for you today? Maybe directly related to those things. Could be from song lyrics, stuff that's happened around the church, could be from the teaching, from the meditation. What is Shalom inviting you into today? Spirit of God, I pray that you give us continued clarity on what it means for us to be people of Shalom. And that when we sense the invitation of Shalom to go forward toward Shalom, with Shalom, and we're anxious and we're afraid, remind us uh, that Shalom isn't always popular, but it is beautiful and good and right and true. So give us the courage that we need because at times it's going to be countercultural and counterintuitive. And yet it's shalom. And we trust it. But help us in our lack of trust. And remind us, God, that the one that we're following is Jesus and our tradition. And we want to be faithful to that. And so we trust that what he started is something uh, that we want to continue. And that the prayer that he taught us is a model of organizing our lives and our thoughts to allow more and more shalom into the world and into our lives. And so to that end, we pray the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for coming. Hope you had a good experience today. Thanks, and we'll see you next week for a Christmassy thing. All right. Mm -hmm.